roughly 2,000 years ago, a man by the name of Paul was going around the Roman Empire and declaring that a Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the world's true Lord. Now, for a first-time hearer, that message would sound crazy, but maybe even more crazy than that was the fact that when people heard this message about a crucified Lord, things would just happen. Like, lives were changed, people were transformed, and people ended up believing. Now, Paul would go around all across the Roman Empire declaring this message, and sometimes he'd be well-received, and sometimes they'd beat him up and kick him out of the town and say, don't you ever come here again talking about this Jesus. One of the cities he brought this message to was a Roman colony named Philippi. And last week, we looked at three encounters that Paul had while he was in Philippi. There was an encounter with a woman named Lydia, a girl who was enslaved by earthly and spiritual powers, and then an encounter with a Roman jailer. And through these encounters, the gospel was preached, and basically, the first church in this Roman colony called Philippi was born. And Paul ended up in Philippi, uh, getting attacked by a mob, stripped, beaten with rods, thrown in prison, put in the stocks. It was horrible. But he was delivered miraculously. And then after that, he went on doing what he always did. He went to another location, another city, another town, and preached the gospel. Now, roughly 10 years after this church in Philippi began, Paul finds himself in a very familiar situation. Ten years from his prison time in Philippi, he's once again in prison, a very familiar location for the man. Uh, And he hears about some dangers, some external and internal threats to the church he started ten years ago in the Roman colony Philippi. And so he does pretty much the only thing he can do at this point. I mean, he's locked away in a Roman prison. So he writes them a letter. And last week, we looked at the introduction to that letter, and we're going to pick up today sort of in the the, the formal start of the letter after the introduction. So Paul, from prison and in chains, writing to a church that he begun roughly 10 years prior. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So what's going on? Again, Paul finds himself in prison. He's in chains for the gospel. But he's saying, hey, look, even though I'm in prison, there's good news because the gospel is advancing even to the imperial guard. And so you might ask, well, how is the gospel like advancing even to the imperial guard and who are they? Let's deal with the latter first. Who are they? These are the men that are closest to Caesar, the king of the Roman Empire. And so they're sort of his elite imperial guard. They're the ones closest to him. You can't get any higher like on the rankings. And they would guard prisoners like this. And so because they're forced to guard this guy, Paul, they're going to hear the gospel. And so Paul, you know, he could have a bad attitude like, hey, I'm in prison, things aren't going my way. But he's like, look, I got good news. I'm in prison, but the gospel is advancing. Because guess what these guards get to hear about all day long when they're next to me? It's like, hey, it's me again. Guess what we're going to talk about? I want to tell you about my friend Jesus. And so it's very, we can't be certain, but there's some historical evidence that would actually say that um, sometimes these soldiers, these guards, would actually be chained to the prisoner so that the prisoner couldn't escape and that they were rotated out every four hours. So you can imagine this. Like Paul's going like, I'm in prison. 
been beaten up, roughed up again, but this is fantastic. Caesar's men have to listen to me. Okay, buddy, chain me up again. Four hours with me. You know what we're going to talk about, right? Okay, next one, four hours later. Keep them coming, keep them coming. Now, Paul would have been talking about the gospel to these people, but it's important that we understand what do we mean when we say gospel, because these imperial guard, these soldiers, would have been familiar with that word. Gospel in Greek is the word euangelion, and euangelion was a word that would have had resonance with the imperial guard, because the Christians weren't the only one who used that word euangelion, gospel. The Roman Empire did, specifically Caesar. And it means good news. So Caesar, king of Rome, has good news. At least he said he did, at least Rome would say he does. And the good news was about the might and victory of the Roman Empire. And how through Roman way and Roman militaristic might, peace was coming to the whole world. And so there was literally a good news of Caesar. And the imperial guards would have been familiar with that. However, Paul is speaking of a different good news, a different euangelion. He was speaking of a Jewish man from Nazareth who was crucified under Rome and was put in the grave but rose in power and glory three days later. And these soldiers had to listen to it. So for Paul, it was still good news. Which gives you a window into the heart and mind of this guy. Because let's again remind ourselves of the the historical situation. It's like, this guy gets beaten up, he's tortured, sometimes he's starved, he's put in the stocks, he's put in the worst parts of prison cells. But even in there, he's like, look, I still got good news. I have good news because of the good news. Do you want to hear about it? And so the situation, the external circumstances are dark and bleak. But Paul has a hope and an encouragement, namely that even in his suffering, even in prison, the gospel goes out. Because Paul is in prison, but the gospel is not. Paul is in chains, but the gospel is not. Paul is bound, but the gospel is free to be spoken, even to the imperial guard, Caesar's men. And because of this proclamation, he's saying that others are becoming more confident. Others who were once afraid because of my imprisonment and my courage and my bold proclamation of the gospel, are they themselves finding courage? That's sort of the way it works, right? Like passion is contagious. Courage is contagious. There might be a group of people who are afraid, but when one person breaks the spirit of fear and shows some courage, then you're likely to see other people. Because of Paul's great, bold, courageous proclamation, there's others being inspired. And the gospel is going out. He goes on, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yet, yes, I will rejoice. So, Paul tells us that there's some other people who are envious and they're his rivals and they are preaching the gospel. And you might think that Paul might immediately be upset by it, but he's not. He's like, look, even though they're preaching the gospel out of rivalry and envy, I still rejoice because the gospel is going out. Now, it's important to note that we don't know the exact historical situation, but likely these people aren't preaching a false like Jesus, a false gospel or false teaching. 
Because when the New Testament authors encounter that, they'll usually call it out. They'll say, this is a different gospel. This is a different Jesus. Don't listen to these men. They're corrupt and they're evil and they're teaching you false things. This actually appears that Paul is approving of the content of their words. He just knows their motivation. So again, we don't know the historical situation. Why would they be preaching a true gospel with envy? And maybe it's just because they don't like Paul. They're jealous of him. Paul's the one who does all the miracles. Everyone listens to Paul. They see him as the authority figure, but Paul always causes trouble and it's bad news for everybody. So we're glad that he's in prison. Now we can go about and, and focus on the ministry. And maybe they even like the fact that people aren't listening to Paul. They're coming to listen to their words. Maybe they're gifted or, or, or good speakers or communicators. And so th- there's a pride thing going on. Like now they're listening to us that Paul's in prison. So they preach a true message, but it's done with rivalry and envy. Nevertheless, Paul's like, what? It's great. Other people are hearing the gospel. He's not concerned about who is getting the credit. Now, uh, multiple people have pointed this pattern out. It's hard to see just when you read it, but this, these sentences are carefully crafted to compare the envious, the rivals of Paul, Paul with those who are faithful. And if you just go through those first, those couple verses, you see the comparing and contrasting that Paul is doing. The envious, his rivals, they preach Christ, but there's also faithful people that preach Christ. But the envious side, they do it out of envy and rivalry. The faithful do it out of goodwill. The envious have selfish ambition, the faithful do it out of love. The envious, they're thinking that it might cause harm to Paul or they're supposing it might add to his affliction. The faithful know that all of this is just going to advance the gospel. And lastly, one group is trying to cause or add trouble to Paul and his chains and the others want to defend the gospel. So once you see the comparing and contrasting and you go back, you could see how just this seemingly normal sentence is actually carefully crafted. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. A missionary that we support from Hope of the Nations in Tanzania named Harold Nepper, he spoke here years ago, and one of the things he said was, it always stuck with me, and I don't know if it's an original quote from him or he heard it somewhere, but he said, it's amazing what you can get done when you don't care who gets the credit. It's actually like super profound. It's amazing what you could get done when you don't care about who's getting the credit. And that's what we're seeing in Paul. He's seeing the gospel go out and maybe other people are saying, oh, wow, look at the ministry of this person. Look at all these people coming to Christ. And he's, he's not jealous. He's not envious. He's like, look how much we can get done if we're not all fighting for credit. Now, the Christian, their default position should be all glory be to Christ. Like we should say all glory be to Christ, but be, like, be real. How many times are you like, envious or jealous when you don't get the credit that you think you deserve. You know, you're at work and you did some, some project and let's, it, it, you know, it's just like high school when you did the group projects. We all know one person did like 90% of the work and then somehow everyone gets the same grade. You know, but it's at work and so the costs are higher, man. It's like, I worked on this project and the boss comes in and this other person got all the credit. 
and like you get bitter and jealous and all kinds of things. But the point is for Paul concerning the gospel, I'm happy as long as people are hearing about Jesus, even if these men mean me harm, others are hearing about Jesus. What a humble posture. What a safe posture. You're, set, you're safe and protected and shielded from jealousy, from bitterness, from envy. It's amazing what you can get done when you don't care about who gets the credit. And then look at this, how it ends. It, this section ends right here. It's just like, uh, and I'm going to rejoice, yet I will rejoice again. And if you look at just the, from last week to this week, how much Paul has talked about rejoicing and having joy, you could forget the actual present circumstances. Remember Paul? Gets beat up all the time, tortured, flogged. Now he's in prison again. And the external circumstances are dark and bleak, but he's in there going, it's all good. I still have joy. Why? Because Paul has a singular aim. He has a singular focus, the advancement of the gospel. So if I'm not in prison, I'm gonna go from town to town and preach the gospel. If I'm in prison, I'll preach the gospel to the guards. If other people out of envy and rivalry and jealousy preach the gospel and it brings me harm, I'm still happy because the gospel is going out. So he has a singular aim and singular focus. And when you do that, you can learn contentment in all kinds of different situations and circumstances. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay, I want to show you something. Um, it's sort of like, like next level Bible nerdy geeky theology stuff, but it's pretty cool. And I, you guys, I figure you're here because you kind of like that stuff. So um, this phrase, turn out for my deliverance. Um, Apobesitai es soterion is the phrase in Greek. Uh, turn out for my deliverance. Now, Paul is, is hoping that he's going to be delivered from this prison, and he uses this phrase. But that phrase is an allusion and, an, and a quote from the book of Job. But it's a quote from the book of Job from a Greek translation. Now, let me help this make sense. Uh, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, so it's the Hebrew scriptures. However, by the time Paul's around in the first century, those Hebrew scriptures have been translated into Greek, and the Greek translation is called the Septuagint. Most people in the Roman Empire were reading the Septuagint. So, for example, if you've been a Christian um, since you were a little kid and you, or you know a little bit about um, church history in America, what Bible translation were people all reading 100 years ago? King James Version. So, if you heard someone quote the Bible, you likely heard them quote King James Bible. All the verses that were memorized were, were in the King James. So, that in the time of Paul... What people know and are familiar with is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Paul, in his present circumstances, is just automatically thinking in categories that have informed his thinking his entire life. And what I mean by that is this. When he's reflecting upon his present situation, when he's reflecting on his present circumstances, he sees them through the lens of the scriptures. 
He sees himself through the lens of the stories that he was reading since he was a, a child. And some of you know people like this. They, they, they've been a Christian for decades and they've read the Bible their whole entire life and they memorize scripture so that when you're talking to them about some, like, say, present trial or problem they're going through, just in your conversation with them, if you pay attention, they're like quoting the Bible left and right and, it, and it's like not even, you're not even aware of it. It's just like, oh yeah, I'm looking at this as da-da-da-da, and then I got a da-da-da-da, and then I have to think about blah 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 bum and they're stringing together Bible verses from all over the place. If you don't have anyone in your life like that, it would be good to try to find someone, and you'll just see that like they live and think and breathe through the scriptures. They formulate sentences based upon Bible verses. Paul is like this. And so when he sees his present situation being locked away in prison, he sees himself in a parallel situation to the book of Job. So this phrase, turn out for my deliverance, is repeated from the book of Job chapter 13, where it says this, though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, and the godless shall not come before me. Keep listening to my words, and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case, and I know that I shall be in the right. Okay, so in order to see what's happening, you've got to understand a little bit about the book of Job. So Job is an innocent man who's had a bunch of horrible things happen to him. His friends come along, and his friends give him, like, it's like bad advice, They tell him, hey, Job, all these bad things are happening to you. It's because you're guilty of something. You've done something wrong. All of these bad things wouldn't be happening to you, so you just need to own up to it, admit that you're guilty. Job says, I know I am innocent. And he says, speaking of God, though he slay me, even if I die because of my situations, even if God slays me, I will still hope in him. I will bring my case before his face. This will be my salvation. That's what Paul's quoting. That the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in yours. Behold, I have prepared my case and I know that I shall be in the right. So now put those two together, Paul and Job. Two guys, a lot of bad things have happened to them. In addition to the bad things that have happened to them, people are saying they're guilty. They're guilty of some crime. Both of them are saying, whether I live or die, I will see God and I will provide my case and God will demonstrate that I have been innocent. Now, do you, do you see the parallel? Paul says, this, I'm quoting Job because I'm in this situation. The bad things are happening to me. People are saying, I must have done something wrong. I am guilty of some crime. Nevertheless, I will put my faith in God and even if I die, I will continue to trust in the Lord which sets up beautifully the next verse, which is a favorite Bible verse of many people. And you can see that this life and death theme from the book of Job is exactly what's in Paul's mind because he writes this next. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. 
It's one of the most famous verses in scripture. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But what's the setup behind that? He has Job. It's, yes, there's all these horrible external circumstances that are coming to bear upon me. But even if I die, I will not give up hope in the true, living, and good God. Now, how can Paul say this? Because Paul knows that even if he does die, that which awaits him on the other side is gain. His destiny for eternity is one of life and joy. So whatever's going on here, I can have joy and contentment because I know what's on the other side. I know what Christ has prepared. When you know what Christ has prepared for his people, you can be in the present circumstance and say to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now this is not to have a sort of pie in the sky theology um, where you're just like, hey, to live, it's all happy and all good and if I die, it's all good. So no matter what happens, it's, it's all happy, it's fine. No, Paul is very familiar with suffering and pain. And, and as you know, this world is filled with suffering and pain and brokenness. And so Paul is not saying, it's just all good, bro. He's saying that a Christian can endure faithful suffering. And the aim of this present life is Christ. And whatever suffering you go through in this life, compared to that which awaits you, compared to eternity, it will be a momentary blip of suffering. That is Paul's claim. That whatever suffering you might endure here on earth, that is the blink of an eye. It is momentary suffering compared to that which Christ has prepared for his people for eternity. Now, you have to be real. In the moment, suffering doesn't feel like the blink of an eye, right? It's not to diminish suffering in this lifetime. It's to recognize it and to say hurt, pain, suffering, that's very much real. But the faithful Christian endures that and they endure it patiently knowing that compared to eternity present suffering will be a blip it will be the blink of an eye and so the faithful christian is one who endures faithfully because there will be a time when you are in eternity with your lord and no matter how much suffering there was in this life you'll look back and it will seem like a blip So you endure horrible circumstances faithfully, knowing what Christ has prepared for his people. Now, there's another interesting thing that Paul is doing with this phrase, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Specifically, to live is Christ in Greek is uh, ta zain Christos. In the Greco-Roman world, there was a Greek phrase that sounded near identical to ta zain Christos. It was ta zain Christus, and it meant the good life. And so there was a popular phrase in the culture of the time that would say the good life, or I have the good life. And what Paul is doing is he's mimicking that exact phrase and changing one syllable just ever so slightly from the last syllable Christus to Christos. And so Paul is is taking something, a phrase that everyone would be using and saying, no, not the good life. I don't want to talk about the good life. I want to talk to you about living for Christ, to live as Christ. And to live for Christ is the good life. Because to know Christ, even in present suffering, is still a great joy. To know the living God knows you, knows your name, and loves you. That is the definition of the good life. And when you know that, you can endure faithfully. Now, there's a, 
Something we have to remind ourselves in. Because look how this ends. It's once again talking about joy and glory and like happiness. And the letter itself, Philippians, is almost like incongruent. There's, it, there's like tension and there's a paradox. Because if you know the situation, you know the situation is dark and bleak. It's prison. It's possible death, possible suffering. And it's surrounding you. And the church in Philippi is under threats internally and externally, so it's all bad, sort of like everywhere. Nevertheless, Paul still like still got joy because he has a singular aim and focus, the gospel. So if I'm in prison, get to preach the gospel. Out of prison, get to preach the gospel. Bad guys preaching the gospel at my expense, people are hearing the gospel. To live Christ, if I die, great, then I will see the one who I've been preaching about my entire life. And so independent of external circumstances, Paul has this internal, resolute, steadfast joy. And he endures. But you, you just miss it because the tone of Philippians is so up, even though the circumstances are so down. Which brings us to sort of the, the heart of this passage. Paul's singular aim his focus on the gospel. It is the thing that's most important to him, to honor Christ, to advance the gospel. That is his focus. And because that is his central aim, if that's the goal, you could aim at your goal no matter the circumstance. Prison, out of prison, sickness, health, it doesn't matter. I could still aim for the gospel and still see the fruit of the gospel. So Paul gives us that example, but here's the problem. Again, when we're honest with ourselves, it's like, we have divided hearts. We're, we have competing loyalties and allegiances and, and values. And in this culture, it's very easy to let other things become your aim, your singular focus, right? Like our culture is designed to make distractions for us. It's designed to convince us that there's things that are valuable, that deserve all of our attention, that they should be the center of our aim. Now here's the truth, like for Paul and many of the first Christians in the coming years, the temptation would be to deny Christ. You're going to deny Christ or else we're gonna throw you in prison. Stop preaching Christ, we're gonna throw you in prison and kill you. So the temptation is like very much to live as Christ, to die as game. but here's the truth. For most people in our current culture, although this isn't true of all Christians around the world, and it may not be true of us for, for very long either, but right now in our present circumstance, your temptation is not to deny Christ. Your temptation is to make the gospel, to make Christ peripheral, to put him on the side, to put it as second place importance in your life, third place, fourth place, eighth place, ninth place, twelfth place. The temptation of this world will not try to get you to completely deny Christ, but to remove him from your central focus, to have him cease being the singular aim. And so you have competing values, competing purposes, and they're vying for your allegiance and attention. You know, so how much time and energy and worth do we put on our, our comfort, our desires, our pleasures, our feelings? How important are our feelings in this culture? Paul's like, I'm resolute. My aim is the advancement of the gospel. But imagine for a moment, if you were to have Christ as your singular aim, 
he becomes your singular aim. Now, that's not to say that other things in your life you stop caring about. Like, all I care about is Christ, therefore I don't care about this, this, or this. What it says is that other things are now cared for in light of the gospel. In view of what Christ has done, you look at those other things that you care about, and they're in their proper order. So let me give you an example. Having Christ as your singular aim does not mean like you stop caring about your kids. No, but it means you love and look at your kids in light of the work of Christ. And that will fundamentally change how you do things. Because if Christ is my singular aim and I want to love my children in light of what Christ has done, then my number one aim for my kids is that they would come to know and love the Jesus that has given me so much joy. It is my one goal. Now again, that's not to say you don't care about other things. Like you need to care about their education and you wanna take care of them and protect them and love them. But at the end of the day, them getting 100% on their spelling test does not compete with them coming to know the Jesus that has brought you so much joy. And so if my aim is to love my kids, my love for Christ doesn't diminish my love for my children. It expands my love. And now I see them and I love them all the more out of the love that Christ has shown me. And my goal is that they would know. As a parent, your prayer, your number one prayer is that your kids would know the God of the universe loves them. And he died for them. And that they would experience the joy that you've received from walking with Jesus. And if you do that, do you think that might change how you parent? Do you think you might put your kids to bed differently if your number one goal is for them to know the love of God? Do you think bedtime like, might be different? Do you think when you wake up it might be different? What you do before meals might be different? What books you read? What entertainment you allow in your house? When you go on a hike, do you think if your aim is for your kids to know the love of God that that might change the way you go on hikes? It will. It, it ought to. Because it's not just a hike, it's like, son, daughter, like, God, God made this. The same God loves you and knows you. And so it changes everything, but it doesn't diminish those things. It, it, it puts them in their proper order and proper place. Now, you could apply this idea to anything. So, like, okay, parenting, but what about going to work? About going to work. Do you think if Christ is your aim, you might go to work differently? Do you think you might work differently? Do you think you might treat your boss differently? Or if you're the boss, you might treat your employees differently. If Christ is your aim, you think you might interact with that annoying dude a little differently? You know, the annoying guy. It's like, man, you wake up and you pray. Lord, you know, man, I don't like that dude. But I know you love him. So help me to show this man your love. So if Christ is your aim, you'll go to work differently. You'll interact with your employees differently. You'll interact with your boss differently. And it doesn't mean like, Christ is my singular aim, so I don't care about work. No, those lesser goods are then elevated and they're put in their proper order. You'll go to work differently. If Christ is your aim, you think you might Go to school differently. If you're a college student, you think you might behave differently to your boyfriend or your girlfriend. 
If you're a grandparent, will you be a different type of grandparent if Christ is your aim? I mean, as a grandparent, would you grandparent differently? And the answer should be yes, because I want my grandbabies to know I have walked faithfully with the Lord for decades, and it's been the greatest thing I've ever done. I want you to know that. So work, going to school, college, pick whatever it may be if Christ is the center He's the gravitational pull that all the other planets orbit around. You will act differently in all of those situations. Now, this is not only the right thing to do. Like, this is the right thing to do, this is what the Bible says. It's not only the right thing to do, it is the wise thing to do. It is wise for you to put Christ first. A missionary by the name of Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is wisdom. Like all the stuff that we end up focusing in on in this life, they're fading, fleeting, like temporary things that in light of eternity will like mean nothing. And like we know this, right? How many many times do you worry about something, stress about something or value something or tell yourself, if I could just get this, then my life will be good. And then you get it. And a year later, the thing's in the garage and you don't even care. Do you know what I mean? Everything is temporary in this world, the things that we cling to. So you're no fool to give what you cannot keep, to gain what you cannot lose. Christ, his word, his truth, heaven. So it's not just the right thing to do, it's the wise thing to do. Jim Elliott was a missionary to a tribe in Ecuador, uh, and as he was trying to reach them, he ended up uh, getting martyred, he was killed, they speared him and his four missionary friends. So he gave his life for the gospel. A few years later, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, went back to the very people in Ecuador and continued to minister to the people. And because of her witness and not coming back in hate or vengeance, but coming back in the love of Christ, many were made to be Christian. And it's, it's because it's this idea. It's like the suffering of losing my husband was immense That's not to belittle that, but she'd endured it knowing I've got eternity and I wanna wanna walk worthy of that which I've been called with. So he is no fool who cannot, who, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Which takes us to the center. To live is crisis, to die is gain. Um... The older you get, and I'm sure there's different levels of of wisdom and knowledge regarding this in the room, but the older you get, the more you realize, like, there's a lot of things you really cared about that really didn't matter. Do you know what I mean? It's like you valued, like, you were consumed with this. You thought about something every day, and then the closer you get to the end, to death, you're like, well, that really wasn't worth that much. You know? On your deathbed, you're not going to be like, Oh man, if I could have just got that title change, that promotion at work. I wanted that. Can you imagine here at the end at my death? But imagine when I was 33, if I got the title senior associate manager. Do you hear that, babe? Senior. Don't say the associate part. Senior associate. And you know this. Like you place worth in title and position so much that it consumes you. Or it's like, 
you're at the end and you're at the deathbed. And I was like, I remember when I was 38, I should have bought that car. Oh, if I could have been driving in that car, how much this impending doom of death would be easier. If I could have had that car. You know, but like money, possessions, position, rank, respect how people look at you. Death has has a way of putting that in perspective of how like meaningless our pursuits are. Because here's the truth, and, and I've been this, there's people, you do not want to be at that place where you're on your deathbed and you're looking back at your life and you realize you put all the worth and value in things that are temporary, fading, and fleeting. They're gone. And, and you've lost. You're at the end. And you may be saying like, well, that's just like cars and stuff, but what about like big, giant human accomplishments? Like, surely those will be valuable, like, Well, here, let's make it a giant human accomplishment. Let's say you're a professional basketball player. You play in the NBA, man. Congratulations. And you're good. You hold three-point records. Most threes in a game. Most threes in a final. Most threes in a season. But you didn't have the most career threes. And so, you know, you're at, the de- you're at your deathbed. You focused your whole life on, on basketball at the, the neglect of your children and your wife. You don't have a good relationship with your kids. You realize you've been a horrible husband and you're at the end, man. And you're looking back at all your faults and failures. How tragic it would be. It's like, if I would have played one more season, I could hold the record for career threes. Meanwhile, you don't even have a relationship with your kids. Never turned out to be a good husband. That's a tragic story. That is not accomplishments. When death's at your door, you're going to know what was valuable. You will know the things that mattered. And what you want to do is you want to set yourself up in a place where on your deathbed, hopefully many, 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 many years from now, you're at your deathbed and you can say, you know, I know I I made tons of mistakes. I have so many faults and failures, so many sins in my life. I messed up here, I messed up here, I messed up here. But you, in some semblance of good conscience, could pray, Lord, I tried to teach my kids about you. My coworkers knew that I prayed for them and that if they wanted to know about the love of God, they could talk to me. I tried to do this for the neighbor. Lord, I know I'm not perfect, but I tried to make your name known among the people you brought in my life. So now I'm ready, Lord. It's time for the great gain. I'm at the end. And now as I turn from one chapter to another and enter into eternity, I'm ready to see the great gain. I've lived for Christ, and now I will know the great gain. To see and behold that which I've longed to see my entire life. You want to go out like that with sin, faults, failures. But we have divided hearts, mixed loyalties. And so Paul gives us this example of a singular aim and focus. And when you do that, you can learn the secret of being content, knowing that the thing that matters most is actually occurring. Because that will happen. The gospel, no matter what, The gospel of Jesus Christ will go out, will be proclaimed, and will bear fruit. And if you doubt that, just look at history for 2,000 years. It will happen. Now, 
uh, some of you are saying, okay, it's time to, to be real. Let's be real. Having this singular aim, singular focus, whether I'm in prison or not in prison, whether I'm getting beat up or not, whether I'm like Jim Elliott getting speared or I'm like his wife going back to minister to the people that murdered my husband, I'm just supposed to have this singular focus. And you're just saying, let's be real, Isaac, I barely made it to church today, man. You know, and it's been hard enough paying attention the last 15 minutes too. So while you're saying I'm gonna go be some super Paul the Apostle or Jim Elliot, let's be real, I'm not Paul, I'm not Jim Elliot, I'm not Elizabeth Elliot. And here's the thing, you're right, you're not Paul. (laughs) You're probably not likely gonna get beat up and thrown in prison and then sing worship songs. But, but, um, you can begin to do the next right thing today in the moment and begin to make your priorities clear and in right order so that maybe 10 years, 20 years from now, you might have developed the moral fortitude and backbone to be faithful in a situation if God were to bring you into that. Now, unlikely, most you're not gonna be in a situation like Paul. But what you wanna do is in the present, make daily decisions to value Christ, to set your aim upon him, And the more and more you do that, the stronger you become, the more faithful you become. And your goal for today is to say, today, Lord, I want to be more faithful than I was yesterday. And let me tell you something. If your goal is to be more faithful today than it was yesterday, you do that day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, you'd be surprised just how far God will take you. And the reason why you can be certain that God will grow you and mature you is not because you've discovered some magic, innate, like, ability within yourself, but you could be confident that God will mature you and develop you because Paul in prison, Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Christians are called to have the singular aim of Christ and have all other goods be in right order before the ultimate good. And yes, maybe you can look at people like Paul or people who died for the faith and say, I am so far from that, I barely got to church on time. Well, today, don't worry about being a martyr. But say, right now, how can I begin to prioritize Christ? Are there things in my life that I am valuing above my Lord? And like, think about them right now. What are the things that are competing for worth and value? What are you elevating above Christ? And how could you now, in the present, put those things in proper order? Because I'm sure most of us, if we look like, yeah, you know what? I've been way too stressed out and valuing this, this thing too much. Lord, help me to put it in its proper order. Help me to put it in its proper order. And so no matter who you are or where you're at, everyone can say, I want to be more faithful today than I was yesterday. So as we prepare for communion, I just want us all to think about that. What's, what's something right now that you could put in proper order that you've been overvaluing, that's taking your aim off of Christ, that, divide, that divides the loyalty of your heart? What might it be? And then say, Lord, I, I want to give this to you. And I know I am weak in the flesh, but he who began a good work in me is faithful to complete it. So let's take those thoughts with us as we stand and prepare for communion.